Again, parents, thanks for uh, entrusting your kids to us. Um, if there's everything, anything that, that uh, maybe your kids need and they don't ask, please call. We, we love having college students uh, here in our church. We, we love the opportunity. I, my wife and I did college ministry for many years, and uh, so it's still really uh, you know, important to, on our hearts. Uh, it's a great stage of life, and we love going to be here with you. So uh, this morning as we're moving in toward the Easter season, we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 27. If you want to turn there, Matthew 27. I thought I'd begin by telling you a little story. When I was in high school, my mom worked for A&M, and she would usually uh, get off work by about 5, and she'd be home by 5.30. And so sometimes she would leave me instructions, little little written instructions, if I got back from practice early, uh, how I could help get dinner going. And I remember one afternoon in particular, she left me a note and said, I need you to make the jello. And I'm thinking, jello, awesome, right? I already know how to make scrambled eggs and I can make grilled cheese sandwiches. Jello, I can add jello to my repertoire. How hard can it be, right? I, I look at the back of the box, it says, uh, add water and refrigerate, right? I'm good. So, uh, so I put the, the powdered stuff in the bowl and uh, the gelatin mix, and then I boiled the water. And then I, I poured the boiling water onto the jello mix and um, it exploded. Right, I didn't know. I mean, you Jello makers, I know this, but you're not supposed to put boiling water on. Just hot water, boiling water created this reaction, and this freshly liquefied gel, red gelatin mix just it, it went all over the cabinets, all over the countertop, all over me, and all over my mom's brand new cream carpet. Right, kids, this is when people put carpeting in the kitchen. It's a terrible idea, but she had just replaced this old nasty carpet with brand new cream-colored carpet. So, so this you know, gelatinous, oozing, boiling, lava-like substance embedded itself in the carpet. And you know, I'm down on my hands and knees, and I'm scrubbing, trying to get this red out of the cream carpet. And you know, she came home, and I, she wasn't like really angry, but she spent the week trying to get it out, different chemicals, not, nothing. I mean, it was, it was ruined forever. And so her solution was she bought a little uh, area rug, a little piece of carpet and put it over that spot. Right. And what that served to do for me was every time I walked in the kitchen, I was reminded of my failure. Right. I was reminded of the fact that I had destroyed the kitchen. And so, you know, they did the only thing they could possibly do. They sold the house and built a new one. Right? A, little, a little extreme, right? But they had to take care of the problem of the stain on the carpet. And I, you, know, you know, here's my analogy. My analogy is this. There's a stain on our lives and something radical is going to have to be done to remove it. And that's Jesus. Right? He's the only one who can remove that stain of sin and death. And so we're moving into this season. Of the, about the, we're going to celebrate Friday, the death of of Jesus and his burial, and then Sunday, his resurrection. And so uh, as we're moving into this final week of remembering and celebrating what Jesus did for us, I want us to to look at a story about two men uh, condemned. Uh, Compare Jesus and Barabbas. The story of Barabbas is really a fascinating story of of Jesus as our substitute. And so I want us to dig in Matthew chapter 27. This event's in all the Gospels, but we're going to focus in Matthew chapter 27. And I want to begin reading in verse 11. So now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge, so the governor was quite amazed. Now at the feast of the governor... Feast for the governor, he was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner 
whom they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy they had handed him over. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. But Pilate said to him, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? They said, Crucify him. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? And they kept shouting all the more, testifying, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people said, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas for them, but after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. So a quick summary of events. Uh, The night before Judas betrayed Jesus in the garden, he was arrested, and then he was taken through a series of, uh, we, we call them trials, but really they were examinations. He was in front of Annas and then Caiaphas and then the Sanhedrin. And then he was in front, of Chi- uh, in front of Pilate. Pilate sent him to Herod and then Herod sent him back to Pilate. And Pilate had this moment, this opportunity in which he could release Jesus. But the crowds were, were, were overwhelmingly demanding for Jesus to be crucified and Barabbas to be released. And so he gave in to their pressure, had Jesus scour- scourged, and then he was crucified. And what I want you to notice in this story is that everyone is guilty except the one person who is punished. Right? Everyone is guilty except the one person who is punished. The Jewish leaders were guilty. Pilate understood that the only reason they had handed Jesus over was because they were jealous of Jesus. But they were envious that the crowds might be following after Jesus. In fact, every time Jesus did a miracle, he did something good for someone the Jewish leaders were angry. But they didn't really care about the people except what they could get from the people. And they were envious of the people's affections turning toward Jesus. Pilate was guilty. Pilate was guilty. He was guilty of his passivity. He was the only one who could actually crucify Jesus or release Jesus. He had that authority. And he gave in. I want you to read with me again verse 19. It says, While he was sitting on the judgment seat, Pilate's wife sent him a message saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. Now, uh, this has nothing to do with what I'm going to talk about this morning. This is just bonus. Uh, Husbands, listen to your wives. Okay, verse 24. Verse 24. Now, when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. Was he innocent? No. Even though he went through this, this show of innocence, washing his hands. He was the one who condemned Jesus to die. The Jewish people were guilty. Just days earlier, remember Jesus rode in on a donkey? We talked about that a couple weeks ago. And the people were taking their cloaks and they were laying their cloaks in in front of Jesus and they pulled out uh, branches of palm leaves and they were waving the palm leaves and they were saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Lord, save us. This is Jesus, the son of David. Remember those palm palm leaves represented basically like the Jewish flag. It was a sign of nationalism. They're trusting Jesus to be the one who will destroy Rome and set up their own political empire. And now that they see Jesus in his weakness, they turn on him and say, We don't want him. 
Because he can't give us what we want in this moment. And of course, uh, Barabbas was guilty. Literally, he was condemned to death. We're told a little bit about Barabbas. We're told that he was a thief and a robber. We're told that he was a, a, a political revolutionary. He was a terrorist. He was involved in a, an insurrection movement against Rome and apparently committed murder in the insurrection. So he is in prison, condemned to die. And a, apparently there are two other prisoners, also called robbers, who were participating with him in this insurrection. All three men condemned to die. Now, I, I can't prove this, but because there were three men who were condemned to die that weekend, it's almost certain that three crosses were already put in place. Three crosses were already put in place. Remember when Jesus was crucified, there was a thief on each side. And who was the middle cross for? It was for Barabbas. Jesus literally took the place of Barabbas. And you may have a Bible that has this in the marginal note. Uh, Mine does not. But last year I was reading through some textual uh, evidence uh, in the book of Matthew and discovered that most of the really early and best manuscripts indicate that Barabbas' name was, in fact, Jesus Barabbas. He was Jesus Barabbas. So a later scribe said, well, I don't, I don't want Jesus being that associated with Barabbas. So he omitted the name Jesus Barabbas. That's why Pilate says, do you want me to release for you Jesus Barabbas or Jesus the Christ? Which Jesus do you want? And what does Jesus' name mean? It means the Lord saves. Which salvation do you want? Jesus who is called the Christ or Jesus who is called Barabbas. And they say, we want Barabbas. That's the brand of salvation that we want. And so Jesus literally stepped into the place of Barabbas. And if I can press the metaphor a little bit, church, we are Barabbas. We're the ones for whom Jesus stepped into our place to die. He took our death upon himself. We're the ones who are guilty. And we might say, well, you know, but I wasn't there. How could I be held responsible for that moment? I want to read to you from James chapter 2. James writes this. He says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. Now James is not saying that every sin has exactly the same consequence in this life. That's just not true. If I I lie to my wife, man, that's bad. Things are not going to turn out well at home. But if I commit murder, I go to prison. If I lie to my wife, I won't go to prison well, at least not like literal prison, maybe a figurative prison in my home of some sort, but it's not the same consequence, right? It's not the same. What James is saying is this. Any sin puts you in the category of sinner. right? Any sin, no matter how great or small, puts you in the category of one who chooses to live in rebellion against God. In fact, that's what we know is true of ourselves. We've been born into this world in rebellion against God. And we diminish the significance of this by comparing the relative weight of our sins to others. Right? People who are good are kind of like us, and people who are bad, are, they, well, they commit more kinds of sins. right? And we can always find somebody who fits in that category, and we can always see ourselves as on the, the good end of that curve. right? And we'll frequently go in our minds to the extremes. And go, well, I'm not Hitler. <laughs> wow. No, but have you sinned? And if you sinned, you're in that category that's called sinner, which is one who's chosen to live in rebellion against God. And the standard of comparison is not Hitler. 
It's not even the people around us, but it's God himself because we're made in his image. I want to read to you from Isaiah chapter 6. It says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, what's interesting is if you look in chapters 1 through 5 of Isaiah, Isaiah is saying this, Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. He's calling out woes on everybody else. Woe to this person, woe to that person, woe to this group of people, woe to that group of people. And then he finds himself in the very presence of an absolutely holy God, and he says, what? Woe to me. His entire perspective shifts, and he's no longer, in a sense, comparing himself to anyone else around him. He's comparing himself to the absolutely, perfectly holy God, and he realizes the woe is on me. I can't survive in the presence of a holy God as a sinful man. Psalm chapter 5, David wrote, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. In other words, God can't just pull a carpet over it and say, let's just pretend it doesn't exist. We've got to tear down the house. No evil dwells with you. That's why Paul will say in Romans chapter 6, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. And this is a verse I think sometimes our, our minds go to the wrong place. We think in terms of death, we think cessation. Right? Someone, someone dies and they cease to be with us. We think cessation. But death is not about cessation. Death is about separation. So the first uh, death that was ever recorded is Genesis chapter 3. Remember God said to Adam and Eve, I want you to go into the garden and I want you to eat freely. In Hebrew, eat, eat. Right? Eat up, enjoy. But he says in the moment that you eat, this particular tree, just this one, you will die, die. Literally, you will surely, certainly die. So they took the fruit and they ate the fruit, and did they die? Not physically, right? Not in that moment. But what did they experience? Separation, right? Because death is separation. And so their spirit was no longer united to the Spirit of God, as we talked about last week. They were now living separately from God. They were cast out of the garden, And then because of their spiritual separation from God, eventually they experienced physical death. That is, the physical body was separated from the immaterial body. Spirit and body were separated. That was the next form of death. They didn't cease to exist, but they experienced spiritual separation and then a physical separation and physical death. And if that the issue of death is not solved, it will become permanent. Right? If spiritual death is not solved, if our spirit is not reunited with the Spirit of God, the condition will become permanent. So we come into this world separated. Paul tells us it's because we're born in Adam, right? We're all descended from Adam and Eve, every single one of us. doesn't matter what race you are from. We are all from one race, that is from Adam. So we're born with Adam's bent toward rebellion. And because we're born as sinners, we commit sins. Isaiah chapter 59, it says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not 
here. Why do we commit sins? Because we're born sinners. We're born people who are separated from God, committed to going our own way. And if that problem isn't solved, it becomes permanent. So why? Why would God want to punish us for sin? The fact is he doesn't want to. That's why he intervened with his son Jesus, and Jesus became the substitute. The rages of sin is death, and we either take that death on ourselves, or we allow a substitute to take our death for us. And Jesus is that substitute, perfect substitute. Now, uh, I want to remind you of something. It is um, February, or April, excuse me, April 14th. That means tomorrow is April 15th. That's tax day, right? Um, I hope that's not a surprise to anyone, but I did expect, like, when I announced that, that people might get up and leave. Realize, oh my gosh, uh, you know, I got to scramble and get this thing done, right? It's April 15th, it's tomorrow, it is tax day, and um, that's uh, not our, our favorite day. And I thought, well, people may leave because they didn't finish their taxes, or maybe because we've already talked about death and now we're talking about taxes. Like, this is the worst sermon ever. We're talking about death and taxes all in one sermon. How horrible is that, right? The two things that are inevitable. You cannot escape from death and taxes. And, you know, I, I, I hate the process of doing my taxes. So a couple years ago, my taxes got more complex. I I hired a a guy to help me do my taxes. But honestly, what I really wanted from him was that he would pay my taxes, right? Don't just do them. Go ahead and write the check for me. But he did not agree to that. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the person who agreed to do your taxes would pay your taxes? Well, what about if you could find somebody to do death for you? Right, the two things that are inevitable. Well, we can't take care of the taxes, but the worst challenge, death, there is one who has taken our place. Jesus is our perfect substitute. So when Jesus stepped in for Barabbas and the Jewish leaders and all the Jewish people and the Romans and Pilate and even us, he was following a long biblical pattern of substitution. So I want you to turn with me to the book of Leviticus. And I actually want you to turn there because you probably haven't turned to Leviticus in so very long. And uh, look with me, Leviticus chapter 16. This is a chapter that describes the Day of Atonement. So in, in the Jewish worship calendar, their annual calendar, there were seven festivals. Three in the spring, one in the early summer, and then three in the fall. And the one that marked the beginning of the fall cycle was the Day of Atonement. It was the highest and holiest dates, Yom Kippur. It was the only festival on which Israel was commanded to fast, to humble themselves, to afflict themselves, because it was the day on which, in a sense, all of the, the accumulated debt of sin would be covered over for the year. And there were a lot of rituals that went along with this, but I want to focus this on, on one particular ritual that pertains to, to two goats, and two goats that were sacrificed, chapter 16, verse 8. It says, Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Then Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot for the Lord fell and make it a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it, to send it into the wilderness as the scapegoat. Over to verse 21. Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of the man who stands in readiness. The goat shall bear on itself 
all of their iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat into the wilderness. See the imagery here. The the priest would take his hands, he would lay his hands on the goat, and he would confess the people's sins, in a sense symbolically transferring their sins to the goat. And then a priest, another priest would take that goat and, and he would take him out in the wilderness and set him loose. He'd say, go, right? carry these sins as far as the east is from the west. They've been transferred to another. There's another substitute so that we don't have to die. And this isn't the first time that this concept came up. If you were to go back just a couple chapters to Exodus, Exodus chapter 13. Remember, Israel was rescued out of uh, slavery in Egypt. And the way that God did that is he, he called down plagues. There were 10 plagues. The 10th plague was the death of the firstborn. Every firstborn in the land would die. He says of, of both men and women and, and of beasts. So all of your, all of your animals, your, your oxen and your goats and your sheep, as well as your sons, the firstborn will die unless you provide a substitute, a lamb. I want you to, the week before to take that lamb into your home. You've got a, you got a week to inspect it and make sure it's pure and let your kids fall in love with it. And then you're going to take that lamb and you're going to slaughter that lamb. And you're going to take the blood and you're going to wipe it all around the door, on the doorposts and on the mantle here, all around. So when that angel of death comes and he claims the firstborn, he will pass over your house because a substitute has paid the price for the firstborn. John the Baptist picked up this theme and he said of Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But if you go back even a little bit further in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 22, God came to Abraham and he said, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham said, Here I am, Lord. I'm listening. What is it that you want to reveal to me? What's next in my life? And he says, here's what's next. I want you to take your son, your only son, the son that you love, and I want you to take him to an area called Moriah, and I want you to find a particular mountain that I'll point out to you, and there I want you to sacrifice him as a burnt offering. And it says, Abraham rose early in the morning to do what God had called him to do. The rest of Scripture lays this out for us as as a metaphor of a father being willing to give what was most valuable. His one and only and beloved son. But, you know, there's more to the story that we often overlook, and that is uh, that Isaac was probably a teenager at this point in time. But he carried the wood. He asked his father, he's, well, I've got wood and we've got fire. Where's the sacrifice? He was probably in his teenage years. In other words, he was old enough to resist. And yet he allowed his father to bind him, and he laid on the altar. He trusted his father. So it's an image of a father being willing to give what was absolutely most valuable to him, his precious beloved son. It's also an image of a son being willing to trust his father and to give his life. But you know, remember at the last moment, Abraham's about to sacrifice his son and God says, stop. I know that you love me. I have a substitute for you. It's a ram that's caught in the thicket. It's an image of substitution. It's an image of Jesus standing in our place, willing to submit his will to the Father. It's an image of the Father God being willing to give what was most valuable to him as one and only begotten, beloved Son. Now turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53. And listen to the prophet's description. Isaiah chapter 53. Verse 4. And notice the word that's repeated throughout these verses. It says, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. 
Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. What's the repeated word? It's our iniquity. It's our sin. It's our transgression. Peter picks up on this theme, chapter 2, his first letter, he said, And he himself, that is Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin, be separated from sin, and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. Jesus took our place. Jesus is our substitute. But has ever crossed your mind, why did this work? Right? Why, why did God say, yeah, that's what I need to satisfy sin? I'm going to give you four reasons why Jesus is the perfect substitute. The first is this. Jesus was an appropriate sacrifice. Jesus was an appropriate sacrifice. It says in the book of Hebrews chapter 10, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So in the Levitical order, why all this sacrifice of, of bulls and goats and birds? and all, why, why do that? Well, it was, it was just to be a shadow. It was an image of a better sacrifice, but it couldn't take away sin. It could only demonstrate the cost of sin. Sin costs a life. But it wasn't, in a sense, an appropriate sacrifice because it wasn't a person. Right? It wasn't a person. So the writer of the Hebrews goes on and he says, you know, he doesn't give any help to the angels. Jesus didn't take on the form of an angel. He took on the form of a man. He took on human form. He took on flesh and blood so that he could suffer and sacrifice for us. So that he would be an appropriate sacrifice. He was fully human. Second. Jesus was an acceptable sacrifice to the Lord. Uh, when a sacrifice would be brought to the priests, they would examine it. But they would look, does it have uh, any, any blemishes? Does it have a skin disease? Does it have an eye that's been put out? Is there anything wrong with this? Because it needs to be perfect. It needs to be without blame, blameless. Right? There was a, an ex, a standard, in a sense, for acceptability. Now, I'll tell you another story from when I was a kid. Um, as probably with uh, all of you, one of your chores is to clean your room, right? It's your room, keep it clean. And uh, so uh, I would clean my room, but then it would be inspected. And my standard of clean was not what my mom's standard of clean was, ever. Uh, my standard of clean was out of sight, right? If it's out of, so I would just like jam stuff in the closet and, you know, make sure the closet didn't explode out. And I would jam stuff under the bed or into the drawers. And then my mom would come and she would inspect and see if I met the standard, which I didn't. And so I would redo the process just about every time, you know, it's never really learned that her standard was the final standard. With Jesus, the standard was perfection. I have to have a sinless sacrifice, and only Jesus measures up to that. So, Peter would say, you've not been redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So it's an appropriate sacrifice because Jesus was fully human. It's an acceptable sacrifice because Jesus was sinless. It's an adequate sacrifice because Jesus was fully God. Right? Because Jesus was fully God, his sacrifice has infinite value. Now, I could give my life for someone else. But if I had the, the occasion to do so and I had the motivation, I could 
give my life, I could sacrifice my life for another person, but I could only do it once. Because I only have one life to give. And then having sacrificed my life so that someone else could extend their days upon the earth, that person would eventually die, right? My sacrifice wouldn't be good enough to do anything more than extending that person's days. It couldn't give that person life that goes on forever. But because Jesus is God, his sacrifice is of infinite value. So when Jesus died on the cross, he paid for all sins, for all people, for all time. Rob read the verse earlier, Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. He himself has taken away all our transgressions, having nailed them to the cross. Not just the little ones that seem manageable, but even the big ones, the ones that you committed in the past, the ones that you will commit in the future. Because from the standpoint of the cross, all sins, in a sense, that we have committed were future. All sins for all people. In Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, barbarian, Scythian, Male or female, doesn't matter what what your gender is, what your occupation is, your socioeconomic status, your race, all sins, all people, all time. Writer of the Hebrews says he went into the very holy of holies, the presence of God, by a new and living way, through his blood, once and for all. One sacrifice for all sins, for all time. And now having completed his work, he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Right? His work is finished. So Jesus could say, while hanging on the cross, it is finished. He will never suffer again because he has paid the debt of our sin. Past, present, and future, everything paid for, for all time. Fourth characteristic, Jesus was an intentional sacrifice. Jesus was a voluntary sacrifice. It wasn't uh, that the Romans overpowered him. Remember when Peter pulled out the sword, Jesus said, put it away, man. Do you have no concept? I'm way bigger than you thought I was. I could call tens of thousands of warrior angels in this moment. Rome is not my problem. Your sin is my problem. So i got to lean into that. I'm far bigger than anything you ever imagined. And so I'm choosing to go to the cross. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down and I take it up again. I'm not overpowered by Rome. I'm not overpowered by the Jewish leaders. I don't need to raise my voice and cry out. I don't need to defend myself because I'm choosing to go. Just like Isaac allowed his father, Abraham, to bind him on the altar, Jesus says, I will be bound because I trust my father. So Peter, in his first sermon, would say, you know, this man, Jesus, he was delivered over by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God. This was God's idea. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't that man overwhelmed. It's that it was God's intention. Taking you back to Isaiah chapter 53, I wanted to read you verse 11. This is from the Net Translation. It says, having suffered, he, that is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Jesus, he will reflect on his work. He will be satisfied when he understands what he has done. My servant will equip many, for he carried their sins. See what the Lord is saying is, when his work is completed, he will have no regrets. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Jesus has no regrets. Jesus doesn't look back and go, "Mm, I'm not sure if it was worth it. They're really not measuring up to what I had hoped for 
in these people for whom I died. No, he looks back and he says, I'm so glad it was worth the sacrifice. It was worth death. It was worth separation from my father with whom I had been united for all of eternity. It was worth it. You are worth it. Right? Jesus now, sitting at the right hand of the Father, looks down on you and he says, you're worth it. I'm glad I made the sacrifice. That's something as we move into this Easter week, say, oh Lord, thank you. Right, let me give you a few applications before we leave. Three, three ideas. First is this, uh, give thanks. You know, this is, our, this is our moment this week. It's the most important week for, for us in our Christian faith. Christmas is important, right, because it gets the story started. But without the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we have nothing. And so I would really encourage you to set aside a little bit of time this week to meditate upon the depth of the sacrifice that Jesus made for you and that he says to you, you're worth it. I'm glad I did that for you. A Good Friday service has become one of our, our favorite services as a church, uh, so much so that we added a second one to 4.30 and 6. It's a short service, I love it, but it's just a moment where we just stop and we contemplate what Jesus has done for us. And then we wait a couple days, feeling the weight of sin, and then celebrate on Easter morning. And so let me encourage you, take this week, set aside a little time to actually uh, let your heart and your mind go to that place. Uh, second, tell the story. Uh, you ever heard the, the term creaster? You know what creaster is? Christmas and Easter only, right? Those people, who, you know, that's when they show up. Christmas and Easter only, a creaster. And you probably have creasters who live uh, uh, near you or, uh, you know, are in your family or friends or neighbors or whatever. In our subculture that we live in here in the Bible Belt, it's not uncommon for people to show up Christmas and Easter. So maybe ask some of your neighbors. I'm going to an Easter service. You want to come? Um, they might feel guilty and say, yeah. And then, you know, you have an opportunity. <laughs> I promise next Easter I will present the gospel. It's unavoidable. Right? So if that gives you a moment to invite a friend uh, to, to come and to hear the gospel. Uh, the third would just simply be this. Believe for yourself. Maybe you're a creaster and, oops, you're here a week early. But you're hearing the gospel. You're hearing, oh my gosh. I've heard this idea that Jesus died for the sins of the world, but he died, he died for me? Yeah, he died for you. And he's telling you this morning, it was worth it. I'm glad I gave my life for you. And so we can overcomplicate this idea of faith. It's simply this, just simply right now, in your heart and your mind, speak to God and say, God, thank you. Thank you for giving what was actually most valuable to you, your precious son, your only son. Jesus, thank you for being willing to submit to the will of your Father and to give your life for me, I believe. The moment that you do that, that debt of sin that has separated you from God is now moved as far as the east is from the west. You know, in that tradition of the the goats, uh, according to uh, one Jewish source, that priest would lay his hands on the goat, confess the sins of the people, then another priest would take that goat into the wilderness and actually get all the way to a cliff and push the goat off. They didn't want that goat wandering back in, bringing the sins back into the presence of the people. So let's make sure the goat actually dies. Well, that's what God has done for you in Christ. Your sins are separated as far as the east is from the west. They never come back to haunt you any longer because Jesus paid for it. All sins, all people, for all times, once and for all, your debt has been paid. And now you have life that lasts forever. So maybe this morning it's a great time for you to say, God, thank you. Thank you for the gift of Jesus, I believe. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would celebrate this morning. We would, we would be grateful. And through this week, you would just keep reminding us the incredible debt 
that Jesus paid on our behalf as our substitute. I pray that that would give us courage and longing to reach out to our friends and family who maybe don't have what we have. Um, Give us moments for spiritual conversations. We know that your spirit is chasing, uh, that you leave the 99, you go after the one, and you you long for every man and woman child to, to know you. It's worth the sacrifice. And I pray, Father, for any who may not know you this morning, that uh, your spirit would speak in a really powerful way, even as they sit here or as they walk out, uh, that, that they would be convinced. It's true that Jesus gave his life uh, for each and every one of us. Father, thank you again for your sacrifice. Jesus, thank you for being willing. Thank you for giving us a moment to reflect on that. You're, you're so far greater than we even imagined and so uh, willing to give all to us. We're not worthy, but we're grateful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. And parents, remember, anything we can do to help you, uh, your kids, please let us know.